You're listening to WERA-FM 96.7 in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing-McGarry. Today's episode wraps up a three-part series on independent publishers and authors. I invited a diverse group of authors and publishers to discuss their writing careers and the path to publication. One big issue in today's market is who gets to tell the story. We'll talk about that more today in the second half of the episode. First, my guest is Aris Janigian, author of Waiting for Sophia. The cultural headwinds of the Me Too movement inspired Aris Janigian's latest novel, Waiting for Sophia. This is the fifth novel by an author who was hailed as a strong and welcome voice when he wrote Bloodvine, a novel about the lingering effects of the Armenian genocide through a farming family in 1950s California. Janigian has written about the 1992 Los Angeles riots. He has also written about the philosophy of architecture and works of poetry. His last novel, Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont spent 17 weeks on the Los Angeles Times bestseller list. Janigian was formerly professor of humanities at the Southern California Institute of Architecture. His essays and book reviews have appeared in numerous publications. This new novel, Waiting for Sophia, is published by Regent Press, an independent publisher in Berkeley, California. Joining me from Fresno, California, is Aris Janigian. Aris, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. Aris, I will admit to being surprised when I learned about your new novel. It's the only novel that I'm aware of situated around the Me Too movement that is written by a man. And you've never shied away from big cultural topics in your career, but this is sensitive terrain. Can you tell us about where the story came from? Well, um, aside from being written by a man, I think it's also the only novel that broaches the subject from the point of view of the accused. But I should, I want to turn the question back on you. Why was uh, this book a surprise? It's a surprise to me because as a radio host, I receive so many advanced reader copies or galleys, as they, they call them. And there are marketing pitches surrounding those books. And the marketing pitches um, are very driven toward the current cultural agenda. And so when I received your book, it was just very different from anything that I've received. I don't think a traditional publisher from a New York City publishing house would be comfortable with a man addressing this issue. So I knew when I heard that you had written this book, I wanted you to be on the independent series program. That sounds fair enough. But on the other hand, haven't satirists for millennia been poking fun at and turning the mirror on the powers that be, whether that's the state or church or the academy or simply the self-satisfied horde? So this is what we're meant to do. This is part of our function in society. Um, but to answer your question about the genesis of the book, um, I've been watching for decades now what I, I can only call the demonization of men's sexual energy. Um, back in the 80s as a doctoral student, any number of my fellow my female graduate students were turning away from men and railing against the patriarchy. So this is nothing new that we're saying today. 
On the other hand, all this seemed to go uh, hand-in-hand with the waning of traditionally male roles in culture, including physical labor and the fighting of large-scale wars, and an increase in men's and even boys' suicidal thoughts and behaviors. Uh, Women today are in ascension in nearly every sector of society. Um, Women live longer, are healthier and happier than men, are more politically active, better educated, even before being more satisfied at work, even though they are paid slightly less. So by nearly every measure, women are running um, well ahead of men at this point in our uh, cultural history. Yet at the same time, there seem to be an embrace of women uh, as victims in the culture, which also is nothing new. Victimization is a powerful tool of control in the Western ethos. Nietzsche describes its genesis and effect in the genealogy of morals. So I think what we're seeing is yet another iteration of it. So this book was an attempt to flesh all this out in the current milieu. The professor in the novel, right? for me, he was the grounding character, the main character. The professor is accused of sexual harassment and also serves on a university committee reviewing other harassment cases. That's a pretty great story set up. So can you talk about this character? And was it always your intent to leave him as the only unnamed character in the novel? The professor is really a very average kind of well-meaning, liberal, academic type. And, but it's his very averageness in the current cultural context that makes him so dangerous. And so I wanted to play with that, how someone who's just, just, you know, someone we would have chummed around with on a university campus or college campus 20 years ago, and not thought anything ill of, um, now finds itself in the crosshairs of this cultural movement that is um, uh, whipping him nearly out of a job. So I did want to leave the, his, him anonymous. Um, I did the same thing with Waiting for Lipschitz. The narrator there is also not named. And I guess the reason for doing that is that, you know, we can step into the shoes of an unnamed person and put our, allow our imagination to kind of ride along with his thoughts. So whether or not that works is for the reader to say, but that was the reason for that choice. And I also just like to leave things kind of as open-ended as possible um, this novel, for instance, you know, it's steeped in sexuality and sexual politics, but there's only two scenes in the book, really, one in the beginning and one at the end, that describe the sexual encounter. And um, Sophia, in fact, is uh, described, her physical aspects are described in very little detail. I think I mentioned the color of her hair and the fact that she's quite beautiful, but that's about it. You know, I didn't focus on that when I was reading the book. I now that you say that this technique to leave a character unnamed and then to really deliberately leave out physical traits is interesting because for whatever reason I have a clear picture of Sophia in my mind but I suspect that other readers have a very different image of her in in their mind. So this is a narr- this is a tool that you have used in other books. There are many layers to this novel. I imagine readers are reacting in different ways. I read it to be an amazing meditation on nuance. And there is a 
passage on page 75. I'll read it, and then I'd like you to walk us through this. You write, We are meant for stories, built for them. They create a safe space where we might ponder who we are and what is in store by not having to look at ourselves or life head on, but to truly absorb the truths of the giants, we must in the end confess our complicity, if not our very direct participation in these crimes of heart and mind. So this is coming from the professor's reflection here. He's really reflecting on his life. Can you talk about this passage and how does it represent you as a writer and as a trained psychologist? And remind everyone, you have a PhD in psychology. That's correct. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I don't practice on people, but rather a research psychologist. I did my work mostly in the field of social and cognitive psychology. But uh, to, to answer, to try to comment on this passage that you uh, read, you know, people turn to politics to discover how they might grow, retain, and wield power. But they turn to literature to discover the truth of the human situation. And that truth almost always implicates us. Um, our thoughts, our motivations, dreams, wishes, all the stuff that's part of our common lot. I think, too, as a culture, if we refuse to do an honest and deep reckoning of all those feelings, if we repress these feelings, then we really have only one option, which is to project the dark part of our beings onto others. I think this is the reason we never lack for enemies. I mean, these days people make a big deal about empathy, but really what we lack is empathy for the most intolerable aspects of ourselves, the carnal, resentful, spiteful, lazy, exploitative aspects of our own person. So I think literature allows you to be empathetic with yourself. And that's what that passage, I think, was trying to describe. And what about the words safe spaces? I hovered on that little that little piece. I feel like you're playing with those words a little bit. Tell us about what you meant by safe spaces. Well, you know, today in, in, in academic settings, there are literally safe spaces where people who might have felt offended or uh, um, offended or hurt um, can go to for sucker for maybe counseling or just uh, an ear or a hot cup of coffee. And I think those are fine, I suppose. I mean, I didn't need a safe space. I'm not sure what's so much more difficult now about being in school as it was for me however many years ago. So I think I, that's an ironical, kind of a sardonic twist on the notion of safe spaces that literature provides you with a safe space. It's, it's where we should be going. To go there is to better understanding or understand our human situation. And this is what it's provided for people for generations and millennia. And so I guess, you know, that's what I was after with that passage by using, uh, turning that phrase on itself. The novel we're talking about today is Waiting for Sophia. So let's turn to the character of Sophia. She's pretty compelling. She's sophisticated. 
She's worldwide, and she is a doctoral student. And then there's some other intriguing information about her. She's from a Polish aristocratic family and finds that becoming an escort or maybe even a prostitute is not too strong of a word. It's almost a spiritual calling for her. And I marked a passage on page 163. Walk us through Sophia, and what do you mean by the term doubling? It's a psychological term. And how does this play out between Sophia and the professor character? Well, maybe I should give the context for that uh, for, uh, that word doubling. So Sophia is a young girl, and she... Um, is a irascible young girl, and uh, but also a good Catholic girl. And on this, uh, when she's just entering into puberty, on the steps of her church, she feels herself um, crumble underneath the weight of something she cannot articulate, and goes into a kind of paralysis. Um, so much so that it wor- her parents are worried to death, and you know bring the doctor over to see what's happened with their little girl who's growing into a teen. And um, as time goes by, um, Sophie is able to hone in on what had happened to her and describe it. And the way she described it, describes it, is as a doubling of herself. And what it means in this context is that who she was, what she was born with, all the attributes all the aspects of her personality that had, that had come with her since birth had effectively been expunged. And what was left of her at that age was uh, almost a, um, a cleaning out of who she was and a replacement of that with what society wanted her to be. So she experiences physically and mentally this this a traumatic, let's say, transposition of what the society wanted over what she was. And so she begins this quest in search of herself again. So in psychological terms, this trauma that she experienced becomes a, a tool for her later on in life to assume multiple roles. And this idea of multiple roles is not so much a, for me, it's not so much a, a, a functional aspect of her personality, something she could exploit or use to control the world, as it's a reflection of, the, of, of um, human nature itself. I think that most of our growing into adulthood is about expunging ourselves from the, from the multiplicity of our own characters. It, it's almost as if there's too much of us to handle. And so society helps us in honing down our personalities to one or two um, uh, nameable uh, and usable traits, let's say. And so this passage indicates not just what happens to her, but what happens to all of us. And so that's what I was trying to articulate with that. And I think later on in life, as I said, she will use it to her advantage and as a, and to use it in the course of the novel, is a criticism of ourselves and culture in general. Sophia is from Poland. Why did you decide to include a character from Europe? And I ask that because as you were researching 
what's happening with Me Too and sexual harassment cases in the United States, did you also look to see how European countries and other countries around the world are handling uh, similar cases? Um, I'm a great reader of this kind of material, um, both academic studies and just anecdotal studies and or um, memoirs. And I think that the Me Too movement is there. It is elsewhere. I mean, it's 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 influenced a lot of. It's brought up a lot of debate and influenced a lot of people in Europe, but not to the degree I don't think. Perhaps maybe in England. Uh, England might be a close runner-up to us. But it hasn't really led to this kind of assertive, uh, what I think is a very assertive and aggressive attack on men, and maybe even at the core of men. And this, I think, is unique to the U.S. As Sophia says in, in a classroom discussion, she said, you know, it's less, it seems to me that we're less interested in inequality as we are interested in extracting punitive damages from men. Mm, interesting. So is another way to say that, that the Me Too movement in the United States is a uniquely American phenomenon? No, I wouldn't say that it's unique. I think it's unique that it, it, it sprouted up here. But obviously its reach and its power and its, and its importance is, felt, is being felt in a lot of places in the world. So, um, and for good reason. But the degree to which you're arguing that the degree to which we're looking to extract punitive damages against men, do you think that aspect is uniquely American? I think that is uniquely American. And have you seen other examples in Europe that surprised you as you were doing research for this novel? Not particularly. Um, I guess one thing that surprised me is the French, who are, you know, renowned for their libertinism, recently, you know, made catcalling in public a crime, <laughs> a petty offense. That kind of surprised me. Oh, was that right? When when did that law go into effect? Uh, that was within the last two years. But in general, I don't think the Europeans um, are as, um, their attitude isn't as punitive. They want equality. Who doesn't want equality? Everybody has the right for asking, even demanding of it. But it doesn't mean that they are now demonizing men. Um, and I think that is a particularly American phenomenon. And I think the book begins to explore why that is. But obviously it's not a you know, book of, uh, it's not a non-fiction book hoping to unpack the entire situation. Well, that's true. This is a novel. You've written fiction, but you do have a great deal of training in psychology. And this is an intellectually satisfying read. It's also very funny, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But I, in, I mentioned in the introduction that your last novel, Waiting for Lipschitz at Chateau Marmont, was on the LA Times bestseller list for 17 weeks. And when I did some research prior to our discussion, I noticed that Waiting for Sophia is published by a different press. So I have to ask you, what was the path to publication for this novel? Well, let me say first that I only took one writing class in college. I do not have an MFA in writing. I've never had an agent. I've never been to a writing conference or workshop. And I only 
know a handful of other writers. The six books I've written, one nonfiction, have been published by five different presses. <laughs> and aside from my book, Bloodvine, I never really even had a serious editor. With all that said, the publisher waiting for Sophia felt that the book was too hot to handle, given the, you know, cancel culture environment of, uh, of Me Too, and was very explicit that his staff could never get on board with a book like this. Um, I was surprised. I thought, you know, they, they published a book by a porn star um, who recounts her life as, you know, as an actress. But this book was going to cause him too much grief. Um, I, at one point, I suggested to him that, you know, uh, readers uh, of Jordan Peterson and the whole kind of intellectual dark web crowd might really enjoy a book like this. It's kind of a countercultural book. And he, he thought that that was abominable for me to suggest that Peterson was anything other than a Neanderthal and that his pressured want to pitch a book to that crowd would be completely unacceptable. So I shopped the book around for about a year. Nobody wanted to touch it. I mean, I even at one point wanted to get an independent publicist just to help me with it, and and they all turned me down. (laughs) So finally, uh, Regent Press, a friend of mine published with Regent Press, and he says, hey, listen, this guy's a... This guy's in Berkeley. He's, you know, he, he was raised in the 70s, and he's pretty liberal-minded, and uh, he, might, he might do it. And sure enough, he, he read it and, and thought, you know, this is a really wonderful book. It's really timely. Let's do it. You know, in this dull and pious and self-pitying day and age, I suppose Sophia might be considered by some a transgressive novel. I mean, some very serious people thought, I should use a pseudonym for how much pushback I might receive. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that your publisher is based in Berkeley because that was the other that was another element to my reaction when I received it. I'm like, all right, well, this is Berkeley, uh, Berkeley Press, one of the most progressive towns in the United States. Traditional publishers are not taking big risks. Um, I've heard from authors who know personally of, you know, friends and um, colleagues, many who wrote YA novels, for example, whose narratives didn't fit the current cultural agenda, and they were publishing contract was pulled, or a Twitter feed went viral, and the book was just taken down. So I can understand how many publishers would face that fear. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this independent press series, because in general, independent presses are taking more risks than traditional publishers. Does that fit your impression in general of independent presses? You know, I'm a businessman as well as a writer. So, you know, I don't take these things personally. I think there's tremendous financial pressure on publishers and agents to find books that will make money in it. And, you know, at a time when people aren't reading nearly as much as they used to. Um, but with that said, there's a lot of, uh, been a lot of sissifying of the entire cast of characters from the editors to the publicists to the marketing people to the agents. And this, the, the Twitter, uh, the Twitter um, army out there that might bring a book to its knees and you to your knees in your career is really something to take seriously. I, I do think there is a 
classes, and there's a lot of talented writers out there from MFA programs that can't seem to find anyone to represent them. But I also think there's a lot of these folks have, haven't lived all that much. A lot of writers coming right out of college into MFA programs, and um, they're, to my mind, are sadly hypnotized by buzzwords and buzz topics and don't they have, seem to have lived much outside of the academy in their own minds. So though I'm encouraged by the burgeoning of small presses, I, and I think there's a lot of good writing out there, I don't think there's a lot of serious writers. That's my honest take on it. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. We're going to take a short break when we return more from Eris Janigian and an extended clip from Patricia Henley, author of Hummingbird House from episode one in this series. Listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM. This is Real Fiction. I'm your host, Lori Messing McGarry. Today's episode is part three in a series on independent publishers and authors. You can find more about this series on realfictionradio.com. But now we continue our discussion with Aris Janigian. I'm hearing from a number of authors that their impression is that the New York City publishing houses are very debut-driven and then gets to the point you just made about money and finances. When there's no uh, sales track record, there's that hopefulness and that marketing ability. So I think that that is consistent with what I've been hearing from other authors. But you made the decision, did you did you actually shop this with New York City publishers? Or did you know right away that you would want to retain editorial control over this narrative? I thought there were two or three presses that might uh, work for this book um, that would leave, you know, give me the final say, and or at least give me most of the final say. Um, but I think what you're suggesting is that if it had gone the traditional route, they really would have uh, beat back on several parts of the book, prob- primarily probably the, the sex assault scene. Um, you know, we have one life to live, and we might as well have our say here while we have a chance to say it. So I would never would have changed. I would not have changed a line out of this book unless it was for artistic reasons. I mean, my aim was to produce a book that is artistically unimpeachable. If I've achieved that goal, which is for others to say, then I think the book will find a readership at some point, I hope, um, outside of the um, you know, uh, usual, um, usual ways that books receive notice. Um, there hasn't been a review of the book yet. I don't know if there will be, which is kind of shocking, given that there's so 
there's so much here for the culture to discuss. I think that, again, is part of the resistance that I'm facing. Let's go back to something you just said. You wanted to make your book artistically unimpeachable. Talk to me about the structure and what you wanted to achieve at the line level. It can be pretty obvious to readers of uh, Lipschitz and now Sophia and the third part of the trilogy. They're very interested in the musicality of a sentence. I want, I love the sentence. I love the playfulness of it. I love how it reflects the mind of the character, in this case, the narrator. So I wanted each sentence to pack a punch, but yet be playful and light. So that's what I was attempting to achieve at the level of the sentence. The book is, it has no chapter breaks. It's, a, it's 200 pages. It's meant to be, you know, I, I wanted about a 200-page book because it's going to be a trilogy. So I figured at the end of and when I'm done, it'll be about 600 pages. I wanted to have an internal momentum that would carry it from page one to the end. That's quite a challenge. Um, without the help of um, chapter breaks, which give you the ability to make transitions without much effort, I just had to keep the book moving of its own accord. And that, that was a challenge I put to myself and you know, I hope I was able to achieve that. The structure is a little unique. And um, while there are, n- while you don't have the natural kind of landing, you know, li- landing pads for breaks, what I found in your story is that it's, there's just a lot of humor built in and it's heavy issues and some very difficult issues to sort through, but it's also very funny. And I'd love to know what is the reader reaction to the story after they hear about it may be scratching their heads about why why you would have written this. And then they read it, and it's, it's just so engaging and um, fun to read. So is this, this an, another element, deliberate element, or have you always written in a kind of humorous, funny way? Life is funny. It's ironical. It's playful. And um, I... I don't like taking myself too seriously, and I think that you can you can be introspective and and self-reflective and thoughtful, and at the same time realizing the 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 the, the pathos of it, the the funny pathos of your own you know crestfallenness and. I guess I, I suppose that's how I see myself in the world, and that's just naturally reflected in my writing. So I don't intend to be humorous. It's just what, how my thoughts come out of me. When you finished this book, did you worry that this could be, this could complicate, further complicate your ability to get another book published? And I say further complicate because it's difficult for everyone to get a book published these days. But, I mean, did you worry about publishing something so controversial, or are you just following your artistic muse and seeing where it goes? I don't think too much about um, how um, my writing will affect my writing career, honestly. 
I I've not been someone that people have avidly followed. I don't make a lot of money off my books. There's no one really watching me. Obviously, I do have readers, but there's no one watching how my career is going to unfold. And I don't owe anybody anything. And so I think it's the job of the artist to really, really um, only write what is possessing them, what they must write. After each book, I tell myself, you don't have to write another book. You should only write a book if you have to write another book. But but in your case, you have a planned trilogy, and the first piece was a bestseller. So I guess that's sort of why I'm um, thinking along the terms of okay, you've written a, you you wrote uh, waiting for Lipschitz. It was a uh, it was a bestseller. You say you don't have readers, but you do. And um, so this book came out. It's a little more controversial. And then you have a, a part three, which I'm going to ask you about um, in a moment. Okay, but you answered it. You, you're, you're following your artistic instincts. I'd like to know what your family thinks about this book. My wife has, um, is really behind me, which I am very grateful for. In part, Sophia is patterned after her. In a way, it's, it's a flattering reflection on her. My daughter, who is a junior at Stanford, has read it. And she had some, a few technical issues with the book. She's a very smart woman. But one thing she told me that was really touching, and I think true, she said that my portrait of Sophia was a more progressive, independent, powerful portrait of womanhood than anything she was getting on the university campus today. And I was very touched by that because that was precisely what I aimed for. I find that amazing, and I'm glad you walked through that because I'm also aware that in airing this program, I might get a comment or two about why uh, I made the decision to have uh, a male guest discuss this program. And that is one of the reasons. You published with a Berkeley Press, and you have a wife and daughters who reacted in a very rational way, which I think is refreshing because in this day and age, we have a lot of extremist language, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to find that middle ground where we can talk about art and politics and current events. Very recently, there was a story in the New York Times, and they've been tracking a story at Dartmouth College. And I think you're probably well grounded in this issue because you've been tracking this. Dartmouth College had their own run-in with students who raise sexual misconduct issues. Can you tell us a little bit about what you know about what happened at Dartmouth and how it relates to the, the issues that you raise in your book? Well, this was just reported in the New York Times very, very recently. I began writing this book, by the way, about four years ago, well before the Me Too movement began. I think the case with Dartmouth is there were um, some very um, 
you know, a, um, some professors there who were taking way too many liberties. And to my mind, you know, I wouldn't say it was criminal activity they had engaged in with their grad students, but certainly unacceptable. And um, so they had taken their complaints to the chair of the, this department, and who, by all accounts, was pretty reasonable in following up with their complaints and, and um, going through the necessary protocol to address their concerns. And the professors that were uh, accused of sexual harassment were dismissed. But then a, a lawsuit was filed, and this um, chair of this department was made to be a conspirator almost in the cover-up of these accusations. And um, he was so dis, uh, dispirited by it and depressed by it that he committed suicide. And this is the first time that the New York Times, who has covered this, uh, the Me Too movement from Harvey Weinstein through today, has really shown the dark side of, of the Me Too movement, that there are innocent people also being accused, and this is ruinous to their sense of self, to their, often, sometimes their livelihood. So that's the story you're referring to. Yes. And, and in fact, I circled a paragraph because it sort of surprised me that it was in that newspaper, but it clearly suggests that um, men who were even on the periphery of a harassment lawsuit are at risk of having their careers ruined if their actions are interpreted as being not aggressive enough. Yes, and that happens in the course of my novel. The professor is just going through a case of vetting uh, a harassment case, but he doesn't quite do it in the way that satisfies the other members of this committee. And uh, slowly but surely, he is undermined, and, um, you know, the administration now have, is trying to push him into early retirement, almost demanding it. And he feels that his entire career in the academy, which he, which he spent 25 years in, has been effectively um, ruined. So in, he doesn't commit suicide because he has Sophia there as a bomb, as an ear, as an alternative voice. Sometimes real life mirrors fiction, and sometimes fiction mirrors real life. And that is why you were invited to the Real Fiction Program. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice follow-up. You, you just summed that up beautifully. Uh, Iris, before we let you go, I do have a last question. You, we mentioned this is part of this book. This novel is part of a trilogy. Can you talk about Piece three, what you're working on next. The third volume is uh, tentatively titled Waiting for Rafi. Rafi is an Armenian name. Waiting for Rafi at the Jonathan Club. The Jonathan Club is a very posh, private club in Los Angeles. And Rafi, the narrator in Waiting for Rafi, is a psychologist, black man, who was a formerly a football, college football star who is suffering from debilitating um, back pains and gets, as do so many people these days, unwittingly hooked on opioids. 
that opioid um, addiction then becomes a heroin addiction. Rafi was once upon a time his client, and his client now has turned into his pusher. And so he's waiting at the Jonathan Club for Rafi to get his next fix. So next book is on the opioid crisis. Exactly. Okay. As I mentioned, you've never shied away from the big cultural stories. Well, I think that the opioid crisis reflects a spiritual void, also a physical addiction, so I'm not going to take anything away from that, and a lot of profiteering off of innocent people. But it also, I think, reflects a spiritual void in the culture, and that is really what I'm trying to uh, explore in this next book. Aris, I appreciate your candid responses to all of the questions and your, your breaking down your experience with working with an independent press. It's been really enlightening for me. And so I just really want to thank you for coming for the program. And thank you for having the courage to have me on. My guest is Aris Janigan, and you're listening to WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. This series on independent publishing included discussions with authors finding their audience, creating platforms and publicity, and getting their unique stories into the marketplace. The question of who gets to tell the story received the most feedback during this series. Patricia Henley, author of Hummingbird House, referenced an essay written by author Bob Sakosius, which discusses the tension between exploring our private worlds and making broad statements about the one we share. I've included links to this essay and a recent book review in the New York Times that addresses this issue. Now, here's a bit more from Patricia. There's something um, else I want to ask you about with the independent process, and it gets to the approach that they take to analyzing stories and figuring out where they can go in the world. There's something that I hear a lot from authors, and it's, uh, it's a question that they get from agents and editors. Who gets to tell the story? Um, it's become very sensitive, and there's even a hashtag used by literary agents, hashtag own story when they're seeking manuscripts. And what I thought would be really compelling is to hear from you, um, how, how you view this question being posed to authors, because in the opening scene of Hummingbird House, you go into the point of view of indigenous beggar children. I'd love to know if you were ever challenged by readers or editors about writing a story that involves foreign character point of views. I have not been directly challenged, however, I think that might be one reason why the book was not um, accepted by a, a New York house. Even 20 years ago? Yes. Oh, yes. These issues have been around for a long time. I don't know this for a fact, though. Um, I was I wrote the parts, Eduardo and Marta's section, uh, and they entered into the story very late in the writing process. The storyline of Kate adopting a street child just became very important to me as part of her personal salvation. And I took that risk. You know, I took that risk. And in fact, many people in adoption circles love this book um, because of that. I suppose it could have been written without 
um, having that section at the beginning going into their points of view. My editor at McMurray and Beck, th- those three short scenes at the beginning weren't there when I submitted the manuscript. And because there are multiple points of view in the novel, he suggested that I establish that for the reader up front. And I think it's about six or seven pages. So that's, that's how that scene ended up being there. It's, it's something that authors struggle with. So I think that's an interesting perspective to keep in mind when they're pitching their stories. But you found a more open mind with independent presses. Well, I, I, I guess that's true. Um, I would suggest um, uh, that writers try to find Bob Shakochis's essay, The Politics of Imagination, in which he defends writers writing from any perspective they want to write from. But of course, I, I do want to say I I would never, I would never have written this whole novel from the point of view of a Guatemalan person. I I, I would never have been able to, because I, I you know I'm not Guatemalan. I wasn't reared in that culture. I have to see it, for the most part, from outside as an outsider, and that's why both of my uh, central characters are North Americans. They're people like me. The bulk of your book is um, in the mindset of many characters. Um, I'm just curious about the opening because that might have been something that attracted the the concern of an editor. But it's interesting that you mentioned that essay. I'm read that after our our discussion. Um, There was a New York Times book review um, a few weeks ago about Edna O'Brien's new book. I think it's titled Girls. And she traveled to Nigeria and put the entire story, if I'm not mistaken, in the point of view of the girls who had been abducted in in Nigeria. And Francine Prose wrote the book review, and it was so carefully worded at the at the end of the review said, of course, we we eventually want to have these stories in the point of view of the girls, but let's appreciate the fact that that this author took the time to uh, absorb the culture and reflect on the characters. And at the at the end of the day, it was a, a positive review. But this continues to be something that that all authors have to think about. But a related issue is that you're a writer who's praised for developing a sense of place. And I'd like to know what is the responsibility of the writer when creating a story, particularly when you go into a place like Guatemala, a very complex political world? Well, your responsibility is to be as accurate as you can be. And that takes work. You're not going to be able to find out the things you need to know by Googling them. Uh, you need to go there. And um, I think many writers don't understand that. I, I think the, the, our world, certainly in the United States, and the world at large is, feels sometimes like it's becoming so homogenized. You know, you can go to a Starbucks just about anywhere in the world. And um, to, to find the details you need to use to really to recreate a place accurately and authentically, you have to go there. You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find us at realfictionradio.com. Looking ahead to the next two Real Fiction episodes, I've invited an Iranian-American scholar and an author of a new memoir to discuss recent news events in Iran. First, Leila Hashemi is a policy PhD candidate 
at George Mason University's Shar School of Policy and Government. She is the managing editor of the Journal of Civil Society and a graduate researcher at GMU's Terrorism, Transnational Crime, and Corruption Center. This month, she co-authored one of the most widely read articles in the Washington Post, which analyzed the Iranian response to General Qasem Soleimani's killing through worldwide Twitter feeds in Iran's national language, Farsi. Leila Hashemi also presented a lecture this month at the Smithsonian Museum for Asian Art in Washington, D.C. I will also be in discussion with Shabnam Curtis. She's the author of My Persian Paradox, a memoir about her life in Iran and the United States. The book has been described as a synthesis of personal experience, social change, and political insights both in the United States and Iran. The book is an account of immigrant experience and the psychology of integration. Join me next week at noon on WERA 96.7 FM, streaming on WERA.FM, and you can find me at realfictionradio.com. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.